You're listening to The Voice of Dog. I'm Kaki, your faithful fireside companion. And today's story is the first of two parts of You Are Our Lifeboat by Dan Lanier Turthra Jensen, or just Lanier, who can usually be found relaxing in the English Midlands, where they split their time between cooking, usually delicious food, writing various bits of social realism and science fiction, or creating free and open source software in the KDE project. Sometimes all three happen at the same time, and they tell me that sci-fi epic they've been working on the last most of the decade is getting closer to wrapping up. While waiting for that to land, if you would like more after this one, you can find more of their stories in the anthologies found on their Goodreads profile at goodreads.com slash Rainier. This story in particular can be found in the Fur Planet anthology Exploring New Places, where a variety of animal people go out and explore a wide variety of new places. Please enjoy You Are Our Lifeboat by Dan Lanier Turthra Jensen, part one of two. Excitement and delight. That was the feeling which seemed to flow around me those 28 years ago. That was when I first stepped out of the transport case and put my paws on the deck. The day I and the rest of the thousand-strong crew of engineered caretaker rats had been brought from the training facilities and onto the ship we had trained to maintain our entire lives and which would soon be headed for Proxima B. We had entered the ship, expecting a lot of rooms with equipment that would need tending, the way our training cabins had been laid out. Instead, we had been met with a maze of twisting tubes, splitting and combining. Endless runs of corridors for us to scamper through to get between pieces of kit. It had been much more like our recreational areas, the fun runs that we had run through as pups, just much larger and with equipment for us to work on. It all remained as wonderful to us through the journey as it had seemed to us that first day. Our home-to-be for the nearly two decades' worth of a trip to that distant star had been designed to not simply support us physically, but challenge us mentally as well to keep us fit and in shape so we would be able to perform our maintenance duties. Training had given us the skills needed to maintain the equipment, and the leader of the team which had created us had ensured we would be able to adapt, training us to understand changing circumstances and to deal with them. In space, you had to deal with what you had. Couldn't just order in some new bits from a shop, because the nearest one might very possibly be literal light years away. We had never seen the outside of the ship, but when we boarded we soon learned the layout of it. At least, we technicians did, who had the task of keeping it running. Most of our crew did basic maintenance of the systems, or any of the other many things which needed to be done to maintain the crew itself. But the oldest of us had been able to train longer. We had known more about the systems of the ship than our shipmates. We knew there were parts of the ship that not everybody was aware of but even we who had been granted such knowledge did not really know what it was. How could we have known? We had been taught to adapt, but you could hardly adapt to something you were not aware of. We had not been taught about the world that brought us into reality. Our Creator had made sure that we had been spared the realities of that world, until finally, one day, eighteen years into the trip, she had no choices left but her final one. The choice she made was to give us one of our own. I flicked an ear at something that sounded like panting and claws clicking rapidly against plastic. I pulled myself out from underneath the gently humming air cycling unit I was working on and sniffed at the air. 
As my nose tried to detect whose claws it might be, my gaze searched for the source of the sound, following the soft, sweeping line of the transit tube which snaked its way through the insides of the ship. The soft, knobbly surface allowed air to travel with less turbulence than had it simply been smooth. It also allowed the claws of our paws to propel us along both speedily and safely, the way someone was doing now, approaching me at what sounded like a fair clip. Twenty came a familiar voice from down the tube, the same direction the sound I had heard had come from. The voice was rapidly followed by the scent and the scampering, white-furred shape of one of my crewmates. A junior tech, one of those who had been made towards the end, just before we had left Earth. One of those I had helped train, and who would take over for me when I finally became too old to perform my duties. Twentree, he said again, the nearest he was able to get to saying my name, the number twenty-three. Quick! Our mouths were hardly designed for speech the way our makers had it, but we still managed something recognizably like words. A great deal of information could be conveyed through body language, which of course we did, but sometimes words were just more useful. Our paws lent themselves even less to the sign language some of our creator's creations employed than our mouths did to words, and so, adding in a little gesturing and body language, we had chosen the lesser of two problems. Even then, sometimes it was awkward. 743 had an annoyingly large number of sounds in it that a rat's cleft lip did not allow me to easily produce. Our creator had taught us to adapt, so we improvised. Sehen Sotre, I replied, and pulled myself all the way out from the machine. I moved to stand upright on my hind paws in the low gravity, because composure was important, especially with an overexcited junior technician before you. I deliberately perked my ears and calmly raised my muzzle just a little, a slight frown on my brow as I sniffed at him inquisitively. Detecting a strong taint of worry through his scent, I did my best to retain my own calm, in part to help him. Junior, relax. What happened? The young rat calmed himself and sat up on his haunches, curling his tail around his feet in embarrassment, but still managing to remember to rub the top of his muzzle in greeting. He was panting hard, and I thought he had likely run all the way from command. It would not be anything normal. If there was something urgent in need of fixing, the ship's intercom was plenty capable of conveying his need. If he was here panting like this, either a superior had sent him here for some claw polish and was currently laughing with the rest of their team, or it was something distinctly out of the ordinary. Our location was nowhere near any of the equipment stores, and while he was a junior, he had been one for eighteen years. It did not seem likely to be the former. "'Excuse, sir,' he said between breaths, his bright red eyes glistening in the light as he spoke. He breathed in deeply, eyes closed, and exhaled slowly. He opened his eyes and looked at me more directly, properly. "'Control said, go, get you, tell, alarm, ring zero, alarm.' "'Ring zero, alarm?' I inquired. "'No claw polish.' My twitching whiskers betrayed the worry I attempted to keep inside, and doubtless my young friend realized this, his own whiskers twitching in solidarity. Not no, he said, and got back down on all fours, and crawled closer. One said get, tell run quick. He pointed his nose to the unit I'd been working on. I handle cycler. The last he said, with a more confident air about him, and I realized I might have misinterpreted his mood. Not so much worry as perhaps just straightforward exhaustion. He had run a fair distance, one of our youngest on a mission from the oldest rat on board. Okay, 
Nearly done. Clean to do, then done, I said, attempting to relax my own expression, and nodded to the young tech before heading off in the direction he had come from. He might well have been junior, but he was practically as skilled as me. I had been ten years old when we left Earth, and had five years of training on tech before we left. He had been part of the last five hundred to be created, and had only just got his eyes when we left, and had grown up on board the ship. I had spent the last thirteen years teaching him everything I knew. That air cycler was in safe hands. We knew the humans had realized they could not go themselves because, so our creators had told us, they were fragile. No human was physically able to take the strain of such a journey. Those who had created both us and the ship told us this, and that they had taken the opportunity to construct us together. Design a crew that fit a ship which could in turn be designed for that crew. With no need to fit in support for the fragile human physiology, they had built a ship which would prepare its cargo, as well as its crew, us, for the conditions we were likely to encounter at our destination. It would spend the first half of the trip burning to get up to speed, and then flip and spend the rest burning to slow back down again. It had run almost entirely on auto, with only slight adjustments from our command crew. Since we would be on our way for a fair few years, it had been decided that running life support as a closed system was the best idea. A simplified biosphere with tightly controlled members. Just us, and a selection of plants and bacteria as tightly designed as us and the ship. The plants and bacteria supporting us, us supporting the ship, and the ship supporting all of us. As far as we knew, this is how it had been intended to work. Everything we had been told from when we were born, everything the techs and our trainers had suggested, nothing else. The first ship containing life to go to another star, built with great speed following the excitement of the discovery that there were several stars with inhabitable planets, and that the nearest of those was even at the nearest star to Earth. The ship was a long stack of rings with engines at one end. The rings were separated by empty space, but connected by our tubes and a central hub by four spokes each. The entire thing was covered in large tanks full of water, protecting the delicate biological entities inside the ship from radiation, and the tanks in turn protected from impacts by thick outer bulkheads. The rings were numbered 0 through 19, and the majority were cargo. Just a big bunch of container holds which the thousand of us took turns patrolling to make sure were stable and intact. Numbered from the middle, with 0 in the centre of the ship, the uneven-numbered rings were toward the engine end. The rear, so to speak, though for latter half of the journey it was pointed in the direction of travel. Ring 19 contained control and engineering where I was headed to meet one and was at the far rear. The even-numbered rings were toward the other end, which might be called the front, and ring 18 at the tip of the ship was our habitat. A thousand large rats comfortably holed up in warm nests at the front of the ship. This, of course, was where I had been working in one of the spokes to the central hub. Further out, the rotation would simulate gravity at an Earth-like level, but that near to the hub, there was not a great deal of it. Nice enough every so often, but it wasn't healthy for long, so we tried to go only to the low-gravity sections when we had to. So not only had I been at the opposite end of the ship, I had also been halfway to the hub. You never seem to find yourself in a convenient location when you are suddenly required to be somewhere specific. Ring zero, in the middle of the ship, and where I had to pass through, 
was the ring that nobody outside of a few core people was supposed to know existed. Just a gap in the maps between Ring 1 and 2 that only a few techs knew had something in it other than scurry tubes. After all, since nobody was supposed to go to Ring 0, why would anybody know it was there? Only the first 30 even knew it existed. The singulars and the tens because command was command, and us twenties because, well, general maintenance of the energy feeds has to happen. It had an impact on the structural integrity of the ship itself, and so we had to know the mass distribution of it. But if any of the other 29 knew what was inside, outside of how much mass it contained, well, they hadn't told me. Not that I had asked, of course. It wasn't something I needed to know, and I had plenty of things to work on. Panting as heavily as Sehun Sotre had done, I arrived at the intersection between command and the much larger engineering section in Ring 19, and made a quick stop at a wash station to clean myself up a bit. The wash was a quick one, because it seemed decidedly important that I make haste, but cleanliness being important, and this being one, it was something I felt I had to do. It had the side effect of allowing my breathing and my hammering heart to calm down again. Feeling more relaxed and considerably cleaner, two things that always seemed connected, I made my way up the wide scurry tube from the intersection wash station and around the ring to the centre of command. About halfway there, I caught up to Twenty, lead tech, and a good friend since we had got our eyes. He was one of the few of us with a colour other than white in his fur, one brown-tipped ear. Even with our not exactly amazing vision, he was visible at a distance. We sniffed at each other in greeting, both of us familiar with the scent of the other, and I detected a touch of worry in his, the way he surely did in mine. "'Law Twentry, he said, as we both continued towards command, and frowned as he asked, "'Nor happen?' "'Not no,' was all I could say, though I was sure my own frown and my twitching whiskers told of my worry at the situation. "'Run quick command, C-1,' Junior said. "'Ring zero alert?' "'Junior?' "'No ring zero? he asked, as his brow shot up and his ears suddenly perked, sounding about as confused as I had felt when 743 had passed on the order. "'No,' I said, and looked at him as we entered the command deck and headed, at a more calm pace, over to the far end where one, two, and three laid when they were on duty, on rotating shifts the way the whole ship was. "'Not no. Ring zero alert what?' "'I tell.' one said loudly from across the room as we made our way through the command deck. It was difficult to remember sometimes that our hearing was as good as it had ever been. Fifteen years my senior, one might well now be positively ancient, well over forty years old. Her eyes had turned grey, and her fur had turned from our usual white to a wispy near translucency. Her mind, however, was as sharp as it had ever been, and her hearing as acute as her eyesight was not. "'I'm sorry, sir,' I said as we reached her, sitting up on our haunches and rubbing our ears and muzzle in salute. Both Twenty and I sniffed the air towards her and detected in her only the slightest hint of the worry the two of us shared. "'Get here. Tried quick. Hope okay.' "'Quick okay. Both,' she said, sniffing at us as she rubbed one ear with a paw in the more relaxed fashion her grand seniority allowed. "'My task. Soon done,' she said and pointed with that same paw to one of the large displays beside her. Normally, they showed a mix of sensor outputs that the bridge crew used for operations, and feeds from the cameras showing various parts of the ship's areas, 
like engineering or the wreck areas, or more commonly, cycling through a view of the many cargo holds. The one she indicated to us, however, was showing something very different. I had no idea there were cameras outside the ship, but apparently there were. It looked, I thought, somewhat more bulky than I had expected it would. More than that, though, was what was hanging in the star-strewn space above the ship. We had arrived. Glancing to the side, I noticed Twenty's mouth hanging wide open, and I realized mine was as well, and closed it. Ring Zero's secret, you know, she said, and we both nodded. Here now. It's same secret. This Ring Zero. We given. End protocol change. Important things done. We decide. What do now? This was the first of two parts of You Are Our Lifeboat by Dan Lanier Turthra Jensen. Read for you by Kaki, your faithful fireside companion. Tune in next time to find out what our spacefaring rat friends discover of their own lives and what their collective future holds. As always, you can find more stories on the web at thevoice.dog or find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if this is a difficult time of year for you, when you'd want to be as busy and cozy and snug as the space rat's nest and now feel as if you might as well be on Proxima B, please know that you're not alone. You're great, and I am your faithful fireside companion. Thank you for listening to The Voice of Dog.